Welcome to the 434th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with writer David Gilman, historical novelist and author of the Master of War series. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is David Gilman, author of the historical novel Shadow of the Hawk. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. If someone hasn't heard about your novel yet, how would you describe Shadow of the Hawk, which is your seventh novel in your Master of War series about the Hundred Years' War? And I'm curious, how would you describe the series and the latest novel, Shadow of the Hawk? I just say it's the seventh, so we've come quite a long way from the first book. It can be read as a standalone. I have to say I'm really pleased that when some of my readers pick up in the middle or towards the end of these, this series, they often go back to the beginning. So that's very rewarding. This particular book, it's fairly complex to the point that we, we cover two two major areas of the historical period. But in a nutshell, it's a story of betrayal, of murder, and an attempt to not only save a vicious king, but also to protect an escaped child who knows the identity of the assassin of the young Spanish queen. So there's a lot of, a lot of things going on in there, Jeff. Great. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Shadow of the Hawk? Shadow of the Hawk, it, it tends to be almost a follow-on his, historically in historical times. Because once I started with the series, I was very keen to keep the period going almost like, a, not a serial, but in a series of time so that we can jump a year or two or three ahead. That's fine. But it is historically accurate, and it is of that time. So when I had reached this point in the series, I sat down and I thought, okay, where am I going now? I know where I got to on my previous book. Where am I going to with this book? And how am I going to present my main character, Thomas Blackstone? And how do I make him even more readable for my readers, if that makes sense. Sure. So I'm curious, what are your earliest memories of books and reading? Gosh, do you know, I was an avid reader as a child because uh, I grew up certainly in the very early days, Jeff. We had no television. So I used to listen to radio serials. And of course, that's such a visual medium. And that's, that triggered, I think, the, uh, the imagination in, in the young boy. And then I read whatever I could get my hands on. Now, we didn't have many books in the house. But as I was growing up to, say, the age of 9, 10, 11, and 12, I was starting to pick up my father's books that he was reading in the house. So my childhood reading was, was very iffy. I was getting to grips quite quickly with big stories. I I remember reading, gosh, one of the first, you know, one of the first big books that I remember was Leon Uris' Battle Cry. Now, that had such a visual impact on me. I remember then going off and reading whatever I could about the United States Marine Corps. That's interesting. So what was your writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Now, I I had started off my writing career 
writing uh, radio plays. I, this is how I learned to write. I wrote for radio. I wrote one-off dramas, one-hour-long plays. Then very quickly, quite frighteningly, in fact, because I was working full-time, a radio producer uh, liked an idea I had for a daily radio serial, and he commissioned it. Now, there was very little money involved, but my word, did I have to learn to write well very quickly. <laughs> That's a every, lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Every Monday morning, I had to deliver six radio scripts. And the actors, brilliant actors, they'd, they'd come into the studio, they'd gash the scripts, and I would then carry on. Now, I, I did that for 18 months while I was working full time. Then, after a couple of years of that, and I was getting more confident I always thought it was going to be such a big leap to move on in my writing career. And in fact, as a word of advice to any uh, new writer, I would say, jump in, have a go and do it. It took me a while to get my confidence because I then moved into television. I got to a point fairly quickly where I gave up the day job. I was working in publishing at the time. I gave up the day job. I then became very poor when I started writing for television. <laughs> uh, but again, it, it was such a different discipline that I was writing miniseries, four-part miniseries, but also 12-part hour-long dramas, which were multi-stranded. So there were several, oh gosh, a dozen themes going on always in the background. So th that was a real brain teaser. It really focused the mind. It's rather like when you walk up the steps to the gallows. I, I think it really focused the mind. <laughs> and you had to do it. You, you just had to do it. And I was very fortunate. I think I got away with it quite a bit. But then I was living abroad then. I then returned to the UK and I started writing again from scratch. Because when I came back here, people in England, in the UK, they weren't particularly bothered that I had been interested, that I had done so much writing beforehand. So it took me another few years to start again. And I was writing outlines for films and get, I was commissioned to write outlines for movies. So then I then read a couple of movies that were filmed in Germany and they did well. Then I was offered the part of an author as to write a crime series here called A Touch of Frost. And I wrote that for seven, eight years. And then the actor, Sir David Jason, he decided to retire. He wasn't going to do that anymore. So I sat down with my agent and I said, look, I think it's time I had a go at writing a novel. And uh, I was going to write a crime series. So I said, mm, what shall I do? And I thought, I do need to write some kind of a thriller. So she said, there's quite a demand at the moment for young adult teenage uh, novels. So I wrote a book, uh, and that was called The Devil's Breath. And it became a trilogy uh, called The Danger Zone, and that sold all over the world. So I did three books in there. Then I sat down with my agent and said, look, I really think... I should be writing a crime series now because I've written crime. I've written thrillers. What do I do? But I had, I, I'm sorry, I'm a bit long-winded, but I am getting to the point where we start writing Master of War now. <laughs> so I'm sitting down there 
and I'm toying with various ideas. And my wife came home from an art class, and she'd painted a fresco of uh, a medieval Italian on top of this big war horse. And, and I looked at this, and it, it took me a couple of weeks, I have to tell you, but I looked at this because I knew I had seen it somewhere before, and then it clicked. I had seen it in the Duomo in Florence, and it was the drawing, the painting of a guy called John Hawkwood, and he was a 14th century English mercenary fighting for the Italians, the Viscontis, for Florence, for Milan. And I thought, I know absolutely nothing about this. So I started reading about the period. Then I picked up on the whole Hundred Years' War, and I started reading avidly. And that's when I started writing the Master of War series. And I thought, look, I'll write one book. So I wrote one book. <laughs> and the, the publisher said to me, he said, look, we've got to do three. We've got to do a trilogy. <laughs> So I thought, oh, God, now I really do have to start studying. Well, what I did, Jeff, I decided rather than jump in and, and get these Italian mercenaries and whatever have you into Italy, I wanted to find out where and how, why did they do this? So I went back pretty much to the beginning where the King Edward III of England invaded France in 1346. And I wanted to tell the story through the eyes of a young man, a 16-year-old stonemason in, from the south of England. And he is called up to go to war. The reason I got him into war was twofold. One, I wanted the reader to ex and the character, by the way, to experience the horror of war, of that brutality, because it was such a, it was a terrible way to go to war, let's face it. It was hand-to-hand, -hand, by and large. But right. this young guy, because of his strength, uh, he was uh, a longbowman, an archer, an English archer. And that was the English king's secret weapon in the Hundred Years' War, was the English longbowman. And that I found fascinating. So I went through the various battles, and the first very big battle was the Battle of Crecy, where the English were very heavily outnumbered. But here we had several thousand, 2,000 longbowmen archers with him. Now, these guys could, so the 2,000 men out of, say, what did he have, about 7,000 with him? These 2,000 men, they could shoot 16,000 arrows a minute. Now, that's a heck of a lot of death coming out of the sky. Every man was shooting 12 to 15 arrows in a minute. Wow. Now, at, th at 300 yards, with a strike velocity of 100 miles an hour, that brought down thousands of French armored cavalry. And that was the start of the English king's success in France. And, of course, it went on from there. And I followed this boy's story because this young man almost died on that battlefield. And what he did gave him an honor because fighting alongside in the front ranks was the English king's 
16-year-old son, the Prince of Wales, the Black Prince, as he became known. And he was very brave. And I, I found that these two characters, both young men, both full of courage and fear, their lives were intertwined over the next, so far, 30 years. That's interesting. So I'm curious, when you're working on a novel like Shadow of the Hawk, how much, what kind of re- historical research do you do when you're working on a new novel? As I said, I get to the point, where am I in history? So history has to guide me because I can't change history. I can cheat a bit and tweak events in history because what's really important is to a reader, it must come across as being authentic. And that's really my key issue when I write. So I sit down, I say, where am I in history? Okay, Shadow the Hawk, I am at 1364 to 1366. Okay, why am I there? I'm there because my character is in this place at that time. And what's about to happen is the final battle, or one of the final battles of the war of the Breton succession up in Brittany. So my character will take a part in that, a lead part in that. Now, why is he just going to be there? Why he is there is just not enough to push on for a whole 140,000-word novel. So I look where I am. Then I discovered that a year later, the Spanish king, Pedro I, of Spain, of Leon and Castile. He was a really vicious guy. And he had been accused of having his young French bride murdered. This is all kosher. This is all in history. So I thought, okay, I want to get from the north of France down to the north of Spain in that year and a half, say, period. How do I do it? Well, he had to have a motivation to get down there. And the motivation was that during the battle in the north of France, he comes across a young boy who had been enslaved, a child, nine, ten years old. And he discovers that this child had been a servant to the, to the Spanish queen. Blanche de Bourbon was her name when she was murdered. So I thought, okay, here we go. This child is the witness, is the only living witness to the murder of the Spanish queen. How neat is that to get my guy to go back? It wasn't enough for the man himself, Thomas Blackstone, my hero, to go back. He had to go back with a very firm historical reason behind him. And that came about because at that time, Jeff, the English Prince of Wales had been given the Duchy of Aquitaine, which is the whole southwest region of uh, France. The French had been defeated in so many battles, there was a treaty. So the English king gave his son the Duchy of Aquitaine. He became the Duke of Aquitaine, Prince of Wales, Duke of Aquitaine. And when he was down there, he was very popular. He ruled well up to a point. 
And the area around Bordeaux and that Aquitaine region was has always had always been for some years in English hands. Now, the French king looked at Aquitaine, and he said, "This is genuine, by the way. This is history." The French king was a really conniving guy. He was very clever. The young French king, Charles V. So he looks at this and he says, "Okay, hang on a second. Down south, below Aquitaine, is the border of Spain. If I want to get round the back on the flank of the English prince, I need to secure the north of Spain. How do I do that? The north of Spain, Castile and Leon." The king of Castile and Leon, because they were all little kingdoms there. Don't forget. South of him was the Emirate of Granada, and that was Moorish Spain, run by the Moors. Now, King Pedro had been excommunicated by the Pope because he refused to wage war against the Moors. So now I'm thinking, okay. This is here's my reasoning. This is this is how I get down here, and it's very true that the French king convinced the Pope to stump up a heck of a lot of money, and he said, "Pope, hey, you know what we're going to do is we're going to go, we're going to go south through Spain, and we're going to attack the Moors. We're going to have a crusade. How does that sound?" And the money rolled in. So the French king, he employed. Thousands of mercenaries, men who had fought English, Spanish, Hungarian, French—you name it—they were in this army, and they were actually led by Englishmen. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. According to a recent Indeed survey, and listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com/podcast. That's Indeed.com/podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And the idea was that we're going to come down round the southeast of Spain and attack the Moors. But of course, the real reason was they were going to not attack the Moors. They were going to come down and attack King Pedro, secure the throne for his half brother, and then the French would have the territory south of the Prince of Wales. Does that make sense? It does. 
There you go. There so you it's go. tactic. It's, it's the whole thing. <laughs> so the, the English king, uh, the, uh, the English prince, says to my hero, okay, you've got to go down and you've got to rescue King Pedro. You've got to get him out of Spain and bring him back to Aquitaine, where I will give him protection because we have a treaty between us. goes back a long way. We have a treaty between us. So that allowed my hero, Thomas Blackstone, with a small band of his men to go down into Spain and find his way through to rescue the recalcitrant king who did not want to be rescued, but ultimately had to be rescued. And, and that is really the core story. But of course, lying behind all this expedition are two problems. One is he has got with him the boy witness to the killers of the Spanish queen. Who is it? Was it the king? Was it one of his aides? Was it one of his men? Was it one of the people in the court? Who was it? Only this boy knows. And that drives a lot of the story to get until finally we do identify the killer right at the end of the book, of course. That's great. Given all of your writing experience and your writing success, what advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? It's, it can be quite a daunting task, particularly when you're starting out. Now, when I started out, there was no such thing as writing schools and courses. There were no books, how to do this, how to do that. In fact, I couldn't even get my hands on a radio or television script. They just weren't available. I used to sit in front of the television with a stopwatch and, and, and time a drama series to see how it worked. That's how I started. So I always say, look, don't let the fear shut you. If you've got this desire, this drive, to express yourself, you have to do it. Now, one of, the, one of the key things, perhaps, is that you say to yourself, okay, what do I like to read? Fine. Whatever genre you want to read. If you enjoy reading that, that's probably what you should be writing. Because you've already got an emotional connection with it. And that's going to help you drive. Now, Jeff, if that's not enough... Go and pick up your favorite author's book, any, any book you read. Go and pick it up. Read it. Now, if you look at, if you've read it and you've enjoyed it, and you go back to it and you say, okay, how has this guy, how has this person written this book? You can take a set of marker pens and you can mark, say, yellow for dialogue, put blue for narrative description put red for action, whichever way you want to do it. And what emerges out of that book is a rhythm. And you can see how the character is so, the characters are so important. The characters will drive the story. And once you can see how a well-established author that you enjoy has done it, I, I think that's a really good starting point to do it. I personally, I'm not very good. In fact, I'm no good at plotting a story out. When I was writing crime for television, 
I had to have a, a, a broad outline, several pages of, I think this is where the guy's going to go, this is what's going to happen. But often that changed big time. But the producers needed to know. Now, when it comes to a book, I sit down and say, okay, as I've explained to you, I'm in a period of history. Where am I going to go with this guy? How am I going to get in there? I've got a lot of obstacles in the way. I gave you a very brief outline, but I've got a lot of obstacles for this guy to get through. Now, that happens as I go along because, frankly, I want to enjoy the journey. I, I, I really respect and admire authors. I, I know a couple of crime writers. I know Jeffrey David as well. He sits <laughs> and he plots out everything so carefully. I, I think that's great because when you come to write the book then, it's, it's easy. It's easy peasy. I've tried to do that. I get to about half an hour in and I think, geez, I'm so bored. I can't do this. I tell you what, page one, off we go. Let's see where this takes us. And that's how I do it. And so it really does come down to your, to who you are, how you want to work and how, what is best for you. But don't be frightened by it. Just get stuck in and do it. Got it. So, what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, wow. Do you know what? So much of my time is taken up with research. I, I do an awful lot of research. I, I read broadly. I've built up quite a decent library over the years, and then I get stuck in. Then, of course, there's, I do a lot online. But wherever I can, and I do read as often as I can, I mix a fiction and nonfiction, but predominantly fiction. I always read something I always read an author or a genre that I'm not writing. Sure. If I'm writing, if I'm writing historical fiction, I can't even watch historical fiction on television. I, I can't watch Vikings and all that. I can't do it because I'm too embroiled in my own historical fiction. So I'll go and read crime or thriller. And I tell you, the authors I do, and, and I go, I don't always read authors who have just published. I'll, I'll go back and read their backlist or whatever. I really enjoyed Joseph Finder. I like his writing very much. I enjoy Dennis Lehane, uh, Michael Colony, Connolly, beg your pardon. But a guy that I often turn to who writes this sort of magical realism, and I really like him, uh, is an author called Carlos Ruiz Zafon. And the first book I read of his was Shadow of the Wind. And you know what? This man has, he just has, he has a magical touch. And he takes you... He takes you into your own imagination in a way that I, I just thoroughly enjoy. So I, I read broadly. Another book I'm reading at the moment is a non-fiction book by an English journalist called Ben McIntyre, and it's called The Spy and the Traitor. Now, that's about MI6 getting a Russian agent, uh, Colonel Gordetsky, out of out of Moscow in 1985, it it he was a big he was the best spy the British ever had that came out of Moscow. And this is a nonfiction book, uh, and it reads like a thriller. And if you don't mind me mentioning another book, Not Jeff, at all. do you know? Some years ago, gosh, it was some years ago now. My my television producer said, uh, "Have a look at this slim volume," and it was written by a guy called Simon Winchester, who's very well known. Nonfiction, and the book then was called The Surgeon of Crowthorn. And I thought, oh, really? I looked at this, I thought, really? I'm not so sure, really, because it was about 
an American cavalry officer who had been sent to the Broadmoor Insane Asylum in London because he'd killed a man. And the guy, the Scottish guy who was putting together the Oxford English Dictionary made contact with him, and what a story. This, to me, is one of my all-time favorite books. I should be getting... I should be getting commission of Simon Winchester. I, I, tell every, I tell everybody about this book. It's a beautiful read. It's a great read. It's fascinating. And it tells you, it, it gives you information that I just shook my head and I thought, wow. Now I know, A, why the Oxford English Dictionary is such a wonderful dictionary and how it was put together over so many years. And I, I just like this guy's writing. He, he writes it so well. I, I've read all of Simon Winchester's stuff. It's just great. You know, I love That's it. great. I actually uh, recently watched the movie. Oh, yeah. That was called the, the – what's it called? The Professor, the Professor and the Madman. Mad that with, with – uh, yeah, yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. Mel Gibson. Yeah. yeah. I thought he made a pretty decent job of it, quite yeah, frankly. Yeah. You had to change the title, didn't you, for the movie? Right, right. I, I, no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was good. So, yes, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. So are you working on a new novel now? Yes. Last year, I had published, in between my medieval series, I like to try and slot in a a standalone novel whenever I can. It's a bit of a hard work because I'm doubling up on my work hours. But yes, last year, I did my third standalone, which which was a contemporary thriller, which is my first contemporary thriller. And that was called The Englishman. And that was voted by the Financial Times to be one of the best three thrillers of the year that that has gone down very well we've just had a movie option made on the on the book i wrote the second one i'm just i've just delivered the second one and i've just started writing the third there'll be three so far and then i go back to my eighth master of war novel that's great where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels thank you yes it's my my website is davidgill.com and my Facebook page is David Gilman Author, and that's where I am. Yeah, yeah. Do do please. And I, I actually have really nice conversations with my readers. I have quite a few readers in in America now, and uh, yeah, we get on very well. We we have a bit of a correspondence going, so it's really nice. Thank you. Great. Again, we've been speaking with David Gilman, author of the new novel, Shadow of the Hawk. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And David, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Shadow of the Hawk by David Gilman, narrated by Colin Mace, available wherever audiobooks are sold. Part 1. Death of an Archer Chapter 1. France, north of Bordeaux, 1364 The rider was frozen dead in the saddle. Snow, and then bodkin-tipped frost driven into bones by a snarling wind, had torn away the man's soul. But it was not the hand of God that led him to Blackstone's encampment. A hardy monk, returning on foot to the safety of Blackstone's protection at the Abbey Notre-Dame de Beauchoux, had come across the exhausted man, who, with his final breaths, had gasped for help to find the English king's master of war. The monk, seeking refuge from the bitter winter that was killing man and beast across the land, 
had plodded on towards the fortified abbey, deep in prayer and leading the man's suffering horse. Strong arms, fingers clawing in the biting cold, reached for the dead man, cutting the reins to free his frozen grip. Blackstone saw the satchel bearing the prince's seal. The messenger's clothing creaked when they eased him from the saddle. The horse faltered head low. Men guided it towards the stable with a gentleness reserved for a beast with a courageous heart that deserved to be saved. Blankets, deep, soft straw, boiled oats and warmth from the other horses would aid its chances of survival. They settled the dead man onto a stool, propping his back against the wall. Blackstone looked into his blue eyes. The prince's messenger had fought against his own death in his determination to deliver the contents of the satchel. Blackstone reached out to close the man's eyes, but the lids were frozen open, gazing out from eternity at the gathered men. Some crossed themselves. "'Shall we put him close to the fire?' said Blackstone's sentinel, Will Longdon. "'Sweet Jesus, you idiot! You want him rotting?' the veteran knight. Gilbert Kilbert said. Get him down to the cellars. He needs to be kept cold until the thaw, and then the monks can bury him. The veteran archer shrugged. We'll put him in the cheese room. Then we won't notice when he starts to stink. You're a disrespectful, godless wretch, said Kilbert. Blackstone turned to the gathered men. As are many of us, Gilbert but we will treat this man with respect. The rigour in his muscles will ease. Have the monks wrap him in linen and lay him somewhere close to God. He turned to his squire. John, speak to the abbot. Make my request known to him. Ask for a side chapel and prayers to be said. John Jacob nodded and gestured to the men to bear the messenger away. As they bent to their task, he glanced at the satchel. I'll wager that's bad news, said Thomas. Kilbert closed the door behind them and pushed more wood into the fire. Then he tugged his heavy cloak around him. Like the others, he wore strips of cloth wrapped over his boots to help ward off the bone-cracking cold of the stone floors. Monks were not lords of a manor who placed fresh reeds beneath their rugs. Worst winter I can remember, and this is already spring said Kilbert, squatting on a stool, pushing his swaddled boots towards the flames. Snot drips and freezes like damned icicles. We hack wine casks open and melt chunks of wine over a fire. It's too cold to fight, even if we could find a Frenchman to raise a sword against, and not a whore or a nun in sight to embrace beneath the blankets. It's not just the cold wind that makes your eyes water, it's the ball ache. We should go back to Italy, south, Naples or somewhere. Blackstone held the unopened satchel containing orders from the Prince of Wales. He felt the leather stiff beneath his fingertips. Knowing the Prince, he'll find something to warm us. Then open it. It's time we left this place. Blackstone took out the folded parchment and broke its wax seal. A loyal messenger had sacrificed his life to deliver the summons. What was so important 
that you should pay such a price. His eyes followed a clerk's neat hand. Kilbert waited, eyebrows raised, questioning. Argen, said Blackstone, his mind's eye placing the ancient city halfway between Bordeaux and Toulouse in the southwest, close enough to the northern Spanish kingdom of Navarre. We travel to meet the prince and Charles of Navarre. Kilbert poked the fire in disgust. That poppin' Jay. We saved his bastard ass when we fought the Jacquerie. These damned noblemen. Peacocks on the battlefield. All he's fit for is killing peasants. What does he want now? Blackstone shook his head and passed Kilbert the letter. All we know is that the prince summons us. Two days' ride in this weather, said Kilbert. At least, I tell you, Thomas, the King of Navarre is up to no good. I'm not joyful at the thought that we'll be dragged into a fight to help him. He tossed the folded document onto the table. God's tears. Our king and our prince won the damned war thanks to men like ours shedding their blood. If this upstart has ambitions beyond his ability, then let others ride to their deaths on his behalf, not us. He should stay in that sliver of land he calls a kingdom. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.